This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Anthony DePiran. Anthony is a Hong Kong-based lawyer and writer, and he joined me via Skype to talk in-depth about the evolving protests in Hong Kong and the response from the mainland Chinese government and people. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM in Melbourne. I'm Amy Mullins and I'm with you up until noon every Tuesday morning. And joining me now essentially is the wonderful Anthony Dapperin. He is based in Hong Kong. He uh, is professionally a lawyer and he's also a writer and an author. He authored um, his first book, City of Protest, which is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And it Uh, looks at the history of protest in Hong Kong, and it certainly does have a long history. And he's also just announced he will be writing another book, which is very, very exciting. Um, And I'm sure he's very well placed to do so, given he's been tweeting and following this issue very closely and providing expert insight into it direct from Hong Kong. So I welcome Anthony now. Hi there. Hi, good morning. How are you? Morning. I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. That's good. I'm so glad you could join us again. Um, I feel like a lot has changed since we last spoke. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing since we last spoke is who would have imagined that it would still be going on Mm. all these months later. Um, And, yeah, it's it's just been remarkable. Um, This protest movement has continued to grow and and develop and, and develop, I guess, in some unpleasant ways as well, in the ways that it's gotten more violent, Um, but still no clear end in sight. Indeed. And when I was talking about this issue and what we really saw as the demands of the protesters at the beginning, um, as you are well aware, it was around an extradition bill that uh, was very controversial, that the government would not withdraw. They were refusing to withdraw it from the um, parliamentary proceedings and lineup. Mm. Um, And, you know, it took months to actually get them to formally withdraw it, um, which, Mm. you know, is kind of shocking, really. I, I often, when I I'm reflecting on this wonder what would have happened if, say, um, it had been withdrawn early and Carrie Lam had stepped down. Oh, yeah, I think we certainly wouldn't find ourselves in, in the position we are now. I think back to that first big protest march we had of, of one million people back at, on the, the 9th of June. So that was just over four months ago now. And if after that first march, she'd just come out and said, OK, I, I see that you know, there's some community concerns about this. Um, we won't push ahead with it now. Let's take a pause and, and, and go back to the drawing board. Um, I, I really think the last four months just wouldn't have happened at all the way that they have. But instead, on that that night after the, the million person march, the, the government came out and said, basically, great to see everyone expressing their freedom of assembly. Um, we're going to go ahead as planned. And that's really what sparked all the protests that followed. Um, so after many months, you're, you're right, she did finally agree to to withdraw that extradition bill. It was only a couple of weeks ago that she announced that she would formally do that. But in the meantime, the, the, the events of the months of protests have given rise to a number of new demands. Um, and as well, the, the, the movement has morphed from a movement about the extradition bill to a much broader pro-democracy, anti-government movement. Yes, it seems far more stark in terms of the messages and certainly Mm. you receiving that in the chants that are being used. I mean, I've seen some Mm. that are fight for freedom, fight for Hong Kong, but I believe they have taken things quite far in talking about it as as a resistance movement. 
Yes, that's right. So I guess the the initial way that the protest transitioned was from focused on the extradition bill to focused on some of the, the, the behaviour of the police mm. in policing the extradition bill. So we've had demands for an independent inquiry into the police behaviour and demands related to um, amnesty for arrested protesters and that, and that protesters wouldn't be charged with rioting. Um, and then the movement morphed into demands for universal suffrage for election of the chief executive, which was sort of the, the unfinished business of the umbrella movement protests of five years ago, and they, they were unsuccessful, and so that's sort of reviving their those demands. But then, as you say, the, the, the slogans are moving now into quite stark anti-government and anti-Beijing slogans. So uh, starting around the, the time of China's National Day on the 1st of October, and, and people may have seen from the news that, that China celebrated their 70th, and 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic with a very large military parade in Beijing on the 1st of October. Well, in, in Hong Kong, the protesters were very keen to see that, that that celebration was marked in a different way. And so they had a very large protest march here on that day. But as, as sort of around that time, the slogan started to take on a very anti-Beijing feel to them. And so you'd see slogans and graffiti like, uh, you know, destroy the Communist Party or down with the Communist Party um, and slogans along those lines. And then last week, um, Harry Lamb, the chief executive, in, in an attempt to sort of uh, stop the protests gathering steam or trying to short circuit things, introduced a ban on face masks. Now, people, the protesters had been wearing face masks uh, for two reasons. One, to, to cover their identity because they're worried about facial recognition cameras and, and, and mainland Chinese you know, facial recognition tech and, and being identified for arrest and being identified for perhaps personal appraisal appraisals in their in their business business lives and so on. So they were wearing masks just to hide their identities. But also, of course, they were wearing masks to protect themselves from tear gas. Um, you know, the police fire tear gas very regularly to try and disperse the crowds, and, and so everyone's taken to wearing gas masks to protect themselves. So the government thought if they banned face masks, they might stop people coming out to protest, but it, it didn't work out that way. Um, it really just sparked widespread anger, and, and the really notable thing was from the day that the Facebook, the face mask um, ban was announced, uh, the slogan went from being a traditional one of, of Hong Kong and which is sort of go Hong Kongers, to Hong Kong and Fang Kong, which is Hong Kongers rebel or Hong Kongers resist. Um, and people were, I think, very unhappy with the government introducing this face mask ban. Now, one of the reasons why they were unhappy is that the government didn't do it with the, the sort of the traditional legislative process. Instead, the government made use of these emergency powers, which they've had sort of since the colonial era. And it's a, it's a very... Um, wide-ranging draconian law that basically allows the government to make whatever laws it likes sort of off off the cuff without needing to go through the legislature. So the government made use of these emergency powers to introduce this face masking ban, completely bypassing the legislature, and that really seems to have sparked off more anger from the protesters and, and, and yeah, pushing these um, these slogans into more rebellious territory. Indeed. And have there been other elements of those emergency powers being invoked? So there haven't been explicitly. And the government's been talking about um, the different kind of things they could do. Um, and the emergency powers, you do let them do really anything they want. And, and two of the things that they've openly speculated about is um, introducing a curfew and also censoring the internet in some way. Um, so on, on the first one, they, they did something quite clever. 
but they didn't explicitly announce a curfew. And then when you think about, you know, kind of the the impact that that would have in in a global city like Hong Kong to suddenly say we're going to put the city under curfew would would be a pretty drastic step. Um, would be a drastic step in any city, and, and would lead to pretty widespread repercussions in terms of reputation and, and sort of the public reaction. But they did a, a pretty tricky thing, which is the next best thing. Instead of formally putting the city under curfew, they shut down the subway system. They shut down the MTR. Now, the MTR is is, the, is owned by the government, so 75% controlled by the government. Um, and it's been the target of, of vandalism by protesters because um, uh, from starting from a couple of months ago, the MTR started shutting down their services to stop people being able to get to protests. Um, and there have been a few incidents where they've allowed police into the stations and the police have carried out various violent actions against protesters and passengers inside the stations. And so protesters have come to feel that the MTR is kind of a, a, a government collaborator. It's 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 one of the, the enemies of the protesters. And so the protesters have been quite actively vandalizing um, MTR stations. Um, now, we, I guess we can talk separately about, you know, whether that's a good strategy or not, but it's certainly been something that the protesters have been doing. And so the government said, you know, the same time last week that they introduced this masking ban, and they said we're also going to have to shut down the MTR because it's been so extensively vandalised. We need time to fix it. Now, there's certainly some stations were pretty badly vandalised, but not not all of them. And it wouldn't seem that there were enough that would need shutting down the whole subway network. But that's what they did, um, and that was a pretty clever strategy because in a city like Hong Kong, where it's fairly geographically spread out, we've got you know Victoria Harbour in the middle and Hong Kong Island on one side and Kowloon on the other. Um, everyone really relies on the subway station to get around, including as part of their daily lives and including, of course, to get to protests. Um, and so they shut down the NTR for the whole weekend. Um, and it was a long weekend. This is two weekends ago now in, in Hong Kong at the time. Um, and so that was sort of the first step they took. And, and then secondly, the, the relationship between the Hong Kong government and the real estate tycoons who, who run Hong Kong are sort of is famously close. Um, and the real estate tycoons, along with the NTR, control many of Hong Kong's shopping malls. And shopping malls um, have a really kind of unique role to play in, in Hong Kong life. And of course, you know, we, all, we all know and love a good shopping mall. But in Hong Kong, um, you know, firstly, the, the, the climate much of the year is really hot and humid. And so a shopping mall is a large air-conditioned space that's comfortable to hang out in. But also, um, a lot of uh, people live in apartment de developments that are attached to shopping malls, um, and people's own apartments are, are pretty small in Hong Kong. As you know, it's a, it's a, it's a famously space-constrained city. So, if people socialise on weekends, one of the most common things they do is they go to shopping malls and they go to restaurants there and, and sort of meet friends and, and, and entertain there, and, and of course, as well as shopping and all the other things. So, so shopping malls have a really vital role in the life of the city um and so what they did is the tycoons and the mtr for that weekend that they shut down the mtr they also announced they were going to shut down the shopping malls um and following that they also shut down most of the supermarkets in the city and, and then many other retailers followed suit so essentially the whole city shut down for the weekend um now it's not clear whether the government sort of explicitly gave an order to the tycoons to, to tell them to shut things down or um this was just something they did. They said they did it to facilitate you know, their employees, you know, or their employees couldn't easily get to work without the MTR operating, and they were maybe a bit worried that there'd be violent protests in response to this masking ban. 
Um, and, and so as a result, you know, the, the city suddenly felt like it was it was under shutdown. And there was a bit of a panic, actually. Um, when people learned that the supermarkets would be closing and the NPR would be closing, people rushed into the supermarkets. There were sort of queues all the way out the supermarkets, you know, down the streets, and um, the supermarket shelves were empty of food. Um, the, the ATMs all ran out of cash. It was, it was sort of like the feeling that we have in the city when a, one of those large typhoons that we get in the summer was approaching, um, notwithstanding it was a, it was a you know, great weather, but yeah, the the, the, the city basically panicked, um, you know, emptied the supermarkets and then stayed home. And, and so that weekend, um, it was like the city was under curfew, even though you know, a curfew hadn't actually occurred. And what that meant was, of course, that less people came out to protest. Um, and then for all of last week, the, the MTR curfew has continued. So they've been shutting down the MTR early in the night, um, around 8 p.m. most most nights, so that people would sort of finish work and then and then jump on the MTR and rush home and not come out to protest again. And, and so that's what the government did. So without sort of explicitly using their emergency powers, using very cleverly their control of the MTR and, and their close relationship with, with the tycoons to, to effectively shut the city down and try to stop people coming out to protest and perhaps try to sort of short circuit this this weekly cycle of protests that we've been seeing here. Mm. How effective do you think that these emergency powers and the use of them um, in the overt and covert <coughs> ways have been effective? Because a lot of people said that um, banning face masks would be very hard to enforce. What do you think has been um, the repercussions or the effect of them? Yeah, look, certainly the face mask ban hasn't been effective and, and at every protest, including the big protests, uh, they weren't that big, but the protests that did occur that the weekend the face ban mask was announced, everyone was wearing face masks. And in fact, I went down to the biggest protest that weekend and um, you know, the, I, I wasn't wearing a face mask. Um, there, there are exemptions in there for people wearing face masks for religious reasons, for health reasons or for professional reasons. Um, and so people sort of had assumed that that, that might cover journalists. But mm. um, if you're if you're a freelance journalist, then you don't have sort of a, an official employment affiliation. So there's sort of a question whether the, the 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 exemption would apply to me or not as a freelancer. So I went down to the protest side, and all the sort of professionally employed journalists were wearing face masks. All the protesters were wearing face masks anyway. I was the only one <laughs> not wearing one. And then when the police started firing tear gas, I just thought, well, you know screw this, I'm not going to stand around and be the only one getting tear gas, so I put my face mask on as well. Um, but, yeah, so people have continued to defy that ban. Um, but I did I, I did have the feeling that um, you know, perhaps the, the curfew in particular was really effective. And, and for most of the last week the, and over the, the weekends that we've just had, the protests were very small and, and very isolated to the respective districts. So people didn't convene in one big place for a big protest march. They were sort of doing smaller protest actions um, you know, skirmishes with police in, in local districts, but nothing major. And I was sort of wondering, is, has this been effective in really taking the steam out of things? Um, but then last night, um, there was another very big protest march in, in Central. Um, so this week, the, the US Congress is due to consider the, this new Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act in, in, in Washington, D.C. And so last night, protesters called for a rally um, to you know, support the U.S. passing that act and, and to draw attention. And I think the aim was to draw the attention of the U.S. media to, to sort of get them to show that Hong Kongers wanted this act to be passed. And it turned out to be a really huge rally. It was down in in the central business district, um, 
after work and it seemed like most people sort of came down from their offices and joined this protest rally. Um, the organisers said there were over 100,000 there. I'm not sure if we got quite that high, but certainly there were you know, definitely tens of thousands. All the streets of Central were, were full of protesters. Um, it was a really positive atmosphere. There was there was no real violence last night. Um, but the other thing to note is that pretty much everyone was wearing a face mask. Um, so this is a law that's being really just blatantly defied by by the population. Um, but, and also last night's protest showed that, that people are still really angry and still willing to come out. So um, so it, it was it was surprising that after a relatively quiet week or so, um, you know, the, the people were out again last night. And you um, talk there about this global reach that this protest really has and the effects that it's having. And um, I was uh, very surprised to find out that it's caused a huge amount of controversy in the gaming world of all places. Um, Mm. Thankfully, I know people who know gaming because I've got absolutely no clue. I was surprised that, you know, it's touching areas of technology. It's touching Apple and Google and their um, use of certain apps, which they've withdrawn, which were involved, mm. which protests were, protesters were using to engage in protest and to avoid police. And and even in the gaming world, you know, a, a person said something about Hong Kong um, and then, you know, their prize money was taken away and they were banned for a year from the game and they've since, mm. you know, kind of backtracked a little bit from that position. But there's this huge amount of tension that seems to be arising um, whereby people are afraid to voice an opinion for fear of a type of backlash against them on either side and it seems to be across many countries yeah i think the 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 last week has been really noticeable just because a couple of those incidents all happened at the same time as you pointed out we had the the blizzard gaming Mm. incident where yeah hong kong gamer called out a a protest slogan during the live stream and, and resulted in him being um, banned uh, by Blizzard, who then sort of sub- subsequently walked that back a bit. We had um, the the general manager of the Houston Rocket send out a tweet about uh, a tweet supporting the protesters. It's, I think it said, uh, you know, "Stand with Hong Kong," um, causing a, a big uh, uh, sort of controversy about the NBA, the NBA in China, and as a re- as a result, China threatened to effectively ban the entire NBA in China. Um, and then we had uh, you know, Apple, who uh, withdrew from the App Store, uh, an app that had been created by some Hong Kongers to help them track where police were on the ground during during protests, because Apple said it was a, an app for an illegal purpose. All of these things sort of showing, as you say, that you know people have been uh, you know, self-censoring for fear of offending China and affecting their business interests in China. But what was being really interesting about the last week is that all of these incidents have prompted a really strong pushback. And it, it seems to me that, you know, in a way, China's very strong reaction to people's criticism of of, of China or people speaking out on issues in, in Hong Kong and elsewhere in China um, seems to be attracting attention and, and sort of attracting um, people or causing people to sort of rethink, you know, China's influence on, on you know, freedom of speech in the West or China's influence on Western businesses and for people to push back on that. So the NBA initially, initially apologised and then um, sort of were criticised by the press in the US and by Congress in the US, uh, and then sort of changed their line. And, and the NBA commissioner came out and said, you know, actually we support free speech, we appreciate that different countries have different ideas of what that may mean, but we're not going to police what our players or, or, or managers or coaches have to say. Um, 
and, and similarly, Blizzard came under huge criticism from the gaming community. People apparently mm -hmm. were trying to delete their accounts in protest, and so Blizzard changed their tune as well. So it might be interesting to see as this continues whether you know the Hong Kong protests have the effect, um, you know, rather perversely of 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 undermining Beijing's interests in the world by um, you know encouraging people to sort of speak out more than they might have done previously. Yeah, I think it was, um, for, for those not in the gaming world, they may not realise just how controversial it was, but it was uh, quite massive that even, um, I think, one of the co-founders of World of Warcraft uh, deleted their account, which is kind of a big deal in the gaming world. So, yeah, mm. it seemed like it, it had some really big repercussions and it certainly led to a number of people withdrawing their monetary subscriptions and, and support from certain games and companies, gaming companies. Mm. Let's get on to some of the other elements of this. I'm particularly interested in the role that identity is playing in the protests on the ground, particularly mm. between, um, I'm not even going to talk about the police yet, but I'm just interested in those who are uh, Mandarin speaking and perhaps mm. um, more pro-Beijing and from potentially mainland China who are working or living or visiting Hong Kong versus those uh, from Hong Kong who perhaps don't utilise Mandarin as their main mode of communication. I've noticed yeah. that there's been a lot of violence in kind of individual skirmishes that have been occurring around and between those two groups. Yes, that's right. And, and I think there's an important bit of background to, to, to this, just to understand where that is coming from. Mm. Um, you know, if, you, if you go back to, and I think we talked about this briefly last time we spoke, but if you go back to Hong Kong you know, in the hand, you know, around the time of the handover 20 years ago, um, Hong Kong's economy was, was, was really strong and a significant part of the Chinese economy. And, and the way that Hong Kong sort of distinguished itself from mainland China was that it was, it was rich and developed and mainland China wasn't. But things have changed a lot over the last 20 years, and everyone has seen uh, you know, China get uh, wealthier and much more developed and more advanced. And, and at the same time, the Hong Kong economy has, has stagnated a bit, but also become much more reliant on mainland China. And so these days, you know, mainland Chinese businesses, mainland Chinese tourists and, and visitors are, are really vital to the Hong Kong economy and so have become much more influential in Hong Kong. And, and also as a result, the, the traditional expat class you might have seen in Hong Kong, sort of, you know, sort of Western foreigners, um, it, it has now switched. And the, the I guess the so-called expat class in Hong Kong these days is mostly people from the mainland, um, mainland Chinese professionals, you know, accountants, lawyers, bankers, uh, people working in businesses who now come to Hong Kong and work for mainland Chinese companies. And so there is now a significant portion of the population here who are those people who speak Mandarin from, from the mainland living and working here. And, and so that has, has caused some friction with the local Hong Kong community. The large number of mainland visitors coming into Hong Kong has also caused some friction. So many people visit from the mainland, obviously, as tourists, and that's that's not a concern. But the local community are concerned with um, people coming from the mainland to engage in, in parallel trading, to buy large amounts of, of goods, which they then take back across the border for resale in mainland China. And that leads to some local shopping areas basically becoming wholesale markets for, for sort of pharmacies and food goods and, and those things for parallel traders and sort of changes the landscape of the retail economy for local communities and leads to those local communities being overwhelmed by, by day traders coming across to buy goods and, and take them back across the border. And also the pressure on things like the health system and the education system for people visiting from, from the mainland. And, and so this caused some 
some some some tensions in the community generally uh, between the the local Cantonese speaking Hong Kongers and and, and Mandarin Mandarin speaking visitors from the mainland. Now, on top of that background, you have, of course, the political tensions. Um, you know, these protests, you know, at their essence, are about Beijing's influence in Hong Kong and the way Beijing governs Hong Kong. Um, and as I as I mentioned earlier, you know, around National Day last week in particular, there were these you know anti-communist party slogans starting to emerge, and the protests really took on a strong turn. So, along with that, there has been. Um, both a, a, an unfortunate turn towards some violent incidents where, where people, Mandarin speakers, often have uh, come into conflict with the crowds. Um, and there's also been widespread vandalism of, of mainland China-affiliated businesses. So, for example, um, during the protests on, on National Day, um, many branches of the mainland-owned Chinese banks were, were extensively vandalised by protesters. And, and other mainland Chinese businesses, such as the the, the China Tourism um, Company, also had its its premises vandalised. Now, th th these are, I think, you know, really regrettable incidents. And I think everyone deplores the violence, and in particular deplores the violence when when people come into physical conflict with one another. Um, and that really does cause the protesters to to lose sympathy and support, um, you know, both among the local community and I'm sure among the international community too. Seeing these things reported in the media, it, it's not it, it's a very ugly, um, an ugly sort of nationalist xenophobic strain that, that comes out. Um, but what's also been interesting is the way that this sort of national identity issue has been feeding into the protests themselves. Um, and I, I sort of start to wonder whether the protests are moving you know, from a, a phase of, so we had the anti-extradition law phase and they've moved through the pro-democracy anti-government phase and it, there's sort of a path forward where they start to move into a more nationalist you know almost pro-independence phase and one of the really striking things that that shows the way that it's moving in that direction is that um a couple of months ago someone composed a, a, a song which is effectively a, a national anthem for hong kong it's called glory to hong kong it, it's it sounds like a national anthem it's got it sort of played by a marching band and you know sort of at, at the you know sort of that marching band pace song like a national anthem and it has very sort of sober inspiring lyrics um it was written just by a, a local hong kong guy he sort of posted it up on an online forum people on the online forum sort of workshop the lyrics back and forth and sort of settled on a, an agreed text of the lyrics and then distribute it with a with a, with a youtube video and and within a week or two it seemed like the whole city had learned this song and now they sing it at, at, at protest rallies and i've got to say it's a really remarkable and striking sight when this song starts to be played and a crowd of thousands get ready to sing it they sing it like a national anthem they they sort of stand to attention they often put their hands on their hearts um everyone knows the words and bear in mind this is something that you know it was only written a month or two ago and you try and find a, a, you know 10,000 australians who know all the words to the national anthem i think you might might you might have a challenge um <laughs> But um, and they they know and they sing it really solemnly and it's actually a very moving experience to witness. But it's something that is just there's something going on there and it, it's done in a way that you know I think you'd struggle to see them singing the the official Chinese national anthem with that degree of of passion and and solemnity and, and ardor. So I, I really wonder you know when you think about the the anti-China 
rhetoric, you know, this sort of growing sense of, of a Hong Kong identity and, and almost a Hong Kong national identity, that's going in, in directions that, that, that Beijing you know, clearly doesn't want things to go. You know, Beijing has said one of the red lines that must never be crossed is, is you know, the, the sovereignty of the PRC and, and, and you know, China's rule over Hong Kong. And when you see protesters sort of pushing sentiments in that direction, you really do wonder, you know, that's extremely provocative to Beijing, and you do wonder, you know, if that keeps going, you know, what that might provoke Beijing into doing in terms of a reaction. Yeah, and it's interesting that you write, you um, raise the the idea of nationalism, and I think that that perhaps might be a reason why individuals who are either expats from mainland China or reside in mainland China might be pushing back or feeling quite angry about the actions of those people in Hong Kong wanting to be distinct or separate and identifying themselves as different because um, a number of people who would identify as Chinese believe that they're all Chinese um, and that's, mm. that's their view. And so to see this kind of thrown back in their face from the Hong Kong perspective, you know, seems to be a reason, a key reason why that tension is kind of bubbling and rising up um, on both sides to me, it seems like there's almost a bit of a loss of face for some people um, mm. who are from mainland China who think that uh, or thought that they were all part of, you know, the same country, even though there was a, a two-system arrangement in the medium term. What are your thoughts in terms of the the feeling on the ground around that and how um, nationalism is interplaying with identity um, and, you know, playing off and creating tension between the two sides? Yeah, no, that's they're all very receptive comments, and I yeah I agree entirely. It's um it's it, it certainly caused that the protesters to lose any sympathies they might have had with people across the border in mainland China. Now, I guess from Beijing's point of view, that's a that's a great thing because one of the Beijing's concerns would have been would have been would have been the risk of contagion from um from mainland. China. China, you know, from from Hong Kong to, to, to mainland China, so I think they're going to be very happy that uh, you know there's no risk of people in the mainland sort of protesting in sympathy with Hong Kong. Um, but um, yeah, so, but but certainly it's caused a, a, a very strong pushback from 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 people living here who are from the mainland, um, and from people in the mainland who would have been coming here to, to visit or to do business. Um, the, the the number of visitors from the mainland to Hong Kong has plummeted. Um, and really affected, you know, in particular, the tourism and, and hospitality businesses here. And but just also more generally, I think mainlanders are thinking of Hong Kong as a less welcoming place to to, to visit and to do business. Um, and it is causing you know, conflicts in, in the community as well. So um, it, it's it's not uh, in many ways it's not a, a positive direction for for this protest movement to go in terms of the community relationship um, in terms of, uh, you know, its support from, from the wider world. I think while the wider world is, is very keen to lend, you know, moral support to a, a pro-democracy movement, if that moves into a, a xenophobic nationalist movement, that's not going to be something that continues to command the sympathies of, of the world looking on. So I, I think it's it's not, you know, very uh, constructive direction for things to go. But I think we do have to take a step back and ask how it's reached this point and, and mm. it's been because you know the, the government has been so unresponsive um the government's you know disappeared from public view essentially um and, and not come up with any policies or any really ways of addressing the grievances of the protesters and so it's things have just continued to boil and and to fester 
and to reach this point. And they're going to continue, I, I fear, getting worse unless the government does something to address the, the underlying grievances that, that are bringing people out onto the streets. Indeed. I think they missed the Crisis 101 course for governments because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've done the opposite of what you would usually do, I think. Yeah. Just finally, Anthony, the police have been very controversial. And as you said, mm. in the medium, I guess, point of these protests, it was a very central point that people wanted oversight of the police. They wanted an inquiry that was independent into the police. And now we've seen escalating use of violence and force from the police. Mm. What is the viewpoint in terms of um, not just the protesters' views of the police, but the wider um, society of Hong Kong and whether they are trusted yeah, I mean, that's been, I think, one of the, the, the potentially the most devastating um, impacts of this of these last few months on, on Hong Kong in the long term is just the way that community trust in the police has been so undermined and so damaged. Um, you know, there's been a number of these controversial incidents with police being overly violent, um, you know, very aggressive, coercive policing, um, you know, innocent passers-by being swept up in, in arrests or tear gas or, or being beaten by batons and these sorts of things. And, and also a sense that the police are not being fair in the way they police the community. So a sense that, you know, people affiliated with pro-Beijing groups or with, with triad groups who attack the protesters um, are not arrested and not charged and, and the police don't target them, they only target the protesters. And when you have a, a sense in the community that the police are no longer policing everyone even handedly, but, uh, you know, uh, sort of picking sides, that's obviously a very damaging direction for, for things to go. Um, and so that 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 undermining of public trust has been has been pretty comprehensive. Um, and it's led to, um, you know, uh, reaching a point where, you know, out in the community, it's sort of considered fair game now for people just to hurl abuse at police as they go past. And we've had incidents, you know, over the last several weeks and months of lo local communities sort of coming out, you know, <laughs> around their local police stations and standing around and sort of hurling abuse at the police and even, you know, throwing rocks at the police stations. Um, whenever police gather to try and disperse a protest, um, you have more people gathering around telling them to go away and that, you know, things are, are are fine until they turn up and when they turn up things get violent and ugly um and this is not just protesters this is often you'll see scenes of people you know coming downstairs from their apartments with old old ladies in slippers and and you know kind of blokes with 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 their with their with their singlets on sort of coming down from watching tv to to, to hurl invective at the police and but that's it's, it's really not a healthy place for a society to be when when people you know distrust their police force so much i mean you know, say what you like about the police they are needed and a community mm. needs a police force to function and it's reached the point where some of the protesters are in fact demanding that the Hong Kong police force be disbanded. Now, they don't mean that literally as in, you know, there should be no police, but a, a, a complete sort of disbanding and then reforming of the police force or a reforming in the way that um, occurred with, with, with the Belfast police in, in Northern Ireland after, the, after the, 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 the troubles were resolved there. So it's, it's really, um, it's, it's been a huge problem for the community. Um, but also it's been, interestingly, an opportunity for Beijing that they have leapt upon. Um, so there was a very notable incident um, a, a month or two ago where, uh, again, there was a police station under siege, the police burst out to try and disperse the protesters. And one of the police officers, a notably bald-headed, you know, shaven-headed officer, pulled a, a shotgun on the crowd and, and sort of pointed it at the crowd. And now they said afterwards that that shotgun had beanbag rounds in it, not not live ammo. But seeing a, a, a police officer wielding a rifle at an unarmed crowd of protesters is a pretty striking image. Um, now, everyone in Hong Kong decried that, but that officer on 
in the mainland became a hero because he was sort of a police officer standing up to these anti-China rioters. And he was invited um, as a special guest of, of the mainland government to Beijing for National Day to take part and to, to watch the parade and, and, and to sort of take part in the National Day celebration. And he's since opened a, uh, a social media account on Weibo, the, the, the mainland style Twitter. He's attracted millions of followers and he's become something of a, of a celebrity in the mainland. And it's just, I think, an example of how Beijing has co-opted the Hong Kong police force. And, and I think for, for, the, for the police here who, who feel you know, under siege and, and abused by their own community, if they suddenly feel, well, I've got you know, friends across the border... Um, I think it's only a natural human reaction to to sort of then lend your loyalties in the direction of 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 where you're getting where you're getting the love from, frankly. So, mm. um, it, what all this might lead to is is the Hong Kong police being um, much more tightly aligned with Beijing and, and much more playing the role of Beijing's enforcers in Hong Kong rather than Hong Kong's local community police force, which is another potentially unhealthy long term impact of of all of all of this. Yeah, seems like we are reaching an impasse, and things can only only escalate so much before there's a, mm. a massive kind of cataclysmic event. Yeah, and look, I think obviously we all hope it doesn't come to that. Mm. Um, and there, there is sort of one way out, which is uh, we have coming up at the end of November um, local council elections here. Now, you know, I know you know, it, it, in, in Melbourne, local councils aren't something that we all get very excited no. about. But um, <laughs> here, here, the local councils, um, they're pretty involved in sort of the day-to-day life of, of, of people you know, living in their communities. But also, very importantly, the local councillors then have seats on the election committee um, that choose the chief executive. Mm-hmm. So it, it's actually um, a pretty important election. And so people are hoping that um, obviously the, the, the pro-democracy candidates will be successful in, in those elections, which are coming up at the end of November. And if they are, you can sort of see a way out where you know, all this protesting becomes election campaigning over the next two months. And if that ends in, in, in big victories for the, pro, for the pro-democracy parties, that people could sort of see this as a bit of a victory and a bit of an outcome for the months of effort that they've expended on the streets. So mm. you know, that, that's perhaps one way that things might reach a, a something of a conclusion that, that, that is not um, cataclysmic um, because, yeah, the other options are, 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 would be unfortunate for everyone. Yeah, I don't think anyone really wants that other option to occur. So. No. <laughs> It's not in anyone's interest. Anthony, congratulations on the fact that you are writing another book. Um, Thank you. It's so wonderful to see and I can't wait to read it when it does eventually come out next year. And thank you you also very much for your time and your really wonderful insights on the ground over there in Hong Kong, which I'm sure is quite stressful at times. So, um, yeah, I appreciate everything you're doing over there. Yeah, thanks. It's it's a pleasure to be speaking to you again. And yeah, look forward to speaking again soon. That would be great. Thank you, Anthony. I've been speaking with Anthony Dapperin, who is a lawyer and an author. He has written a book previously on protest in Hong Kong called City of Protest. And he is writing uh, a new book, which I'm sure will have many iterations given how quickly things change. Um, But it will be called City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. And Scribe will be publishing it. So you can look out for that next year. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.